0: This is the No Stroke Podcast with your co-hosts, David Dancero and Michael Garrow, helping you to support and thrive in life after stroke. Their podcast is designed for educational and community support purposes only and should not replace medical treatment and guidance of your own health professional team.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the No Stroke Podcast, Season 2, Episode 7. I'm here with my co-host Michael Garrow, A little bit on a late Sunday night recording, very unusual. So anyone watching the video cast, Mike, might see. Do I have bags yet? As uh, we're getting getting late into the evening now.
2: We are, we are. Good thing I've had. This is my fifth I think. Oh last no, no two hours. So I'm going to be wired to the moon.
1: <laughs> All right. So we, with that said, we're gonna, we're gonna. I, I've got to ask you, you know, we got to do our in the news segment. We have a great guest coming on shortly. Um, I got to ask you about what's your thought on two things pumpkin, pumpkin spice, and cold showers. Um, I know.
2: Pumpkin spice and cold showers. Um, okay pumpkin spice it's past uh, it's past halloween so okay pumpkin spices it should be no longer okay um not yeah. not a fan cold showers i i would love to say that i do you know I, oh yeah, i'm tough and you know i'm yeah. able to to go take a cold shower every morning but absolutely not
1: no yeah. okay
2: um get me in a warm shower let me stay there for about maybe 10 minutes 15 20 if i really have nothing going on Okay. Um, and get me out the so, only okay. thing i do cold is go
1: jump in the irish sea and i'll you do, do that, do that. okay over. so yeah. so i'm already thinking ahead for the reason i asked you is not you like you know you can power nap you 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 know like we talked a little last episode on the yoga side of things um the cold shower i'm already thinking like i can't do that so to prepare for um this late night recording i tried for the first time the cold shower because you know there's uh tim ferris believes in it there's a, you know, he's biohacking health and, and I, I did try it cause I can't power nap. And I think that mm-hmm. might have some merit. I'm going to, I only lasted about 15 oh, seconds. It's yeah. supposed, supposed to last 30. Um, It's supposed to do something. Uh, we could uh, go a lot of places. Yeah. yeah um, so we're going to, yeah, so, yeah. so on the, so I just wanted folks to get to know you and I a little better. Cause I asked the pumpkin spice. I know you don't, you know, you, you, the Guinness beer, you don't like anything, you know, like the coffee and other things added. So, uh, so that would, would no that apply? Spice. To, okay. No, All right. It's like, so it's out. Uh, yeah. We get to know yeah. Michael garrow a little better. So in the news, another hard transition, but that was my, in the news, pumpkin spice, everything. And then there was a little, you know, bit about the benefits of, of deep dive cold, you know, whether it be in the show, what 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 do you want to talk about after that i mean come on what what, what struck you
2: yeah, about? Right. i guess you know,
1: i'll, what, how I'll you be follow a,
2: that? a bit more yeah i'm gonna go you know down <laughs> a, a bit more of a boring stream here um well not not particularly um i'm gonna you know get a serious you know after we've you know after we've talked about pumping yeah, and, and um cold showers so in the news for me A good friend um, and, you know, hopefully a a guest who's going to be joining us here, possibly before the end of the year. Um, We'll see kind of where the schedule falls. But um, Marina Barhovich, who is running a a symposium this week on health coaching, right? So her and her husband, Eugene, um, who I've known a long time through the digital health industry, um, they've launched a company called York Coach y-o-u-r coach and that is a product that is really trying to aid health coaches right um and and try to bring some evidence to the health coaching world um so they've been i think this is their second year that they've run the symposium i attended last year got to a couple of events this past week and it's just brilliant to see like this world of one-to-one support and and that coaching model really starting to make an impact and and scale across you know different chronic conditions. Um, you know, and, and get out of the world of wellness and, you know, your your kind of natural remedy type, you know, healing, um, where kind of, the, you know, that's where health coaches almost sat for a while. Um, so really trying to make it a dent in, you know, healthcare and and it's interesting enough and i'm sure we could dive into it here um, when you intro our guest but lester today you know he he touched on the importance and when we teed up the question of you know where if we were to give you the magic wand you know where do you see see the stroke recovery process it was that one-to-one support you know and coming from a position uh you know uh, coming from Lester who's in that position as a as a head of neurology i mean it it's impactful and you know for I guess when we see where the future of stroke is is moving um you know I I hope it could really mimic what he laid out in this interview so yeah. with that um do you want to intro yeah uh, Le year give a give a give a bit of yeah. a background
1: Yes, absolutely, Mike. I'm really excited to bring Lester Lung on as our guest this week. Um, he's uh, he's a, a board-certified vascular and general neurologist. He's an assistant professor in neurology. He is the director of Comprehensive Stroke Center at Tufts Medical Center. Um, he's the director and founder of the Stro- Stroke and Young Adults Program, the SIA program, which, which, of, which I'm a member of. Um, he's the, he's a PI at the, the Tufts Vascular Neurology Research Group and he, in, in his spare time, he's also the director of the stroke service at Metro West Medical Center. And when, um, when I met him last in his group, um, preparing for his speech and his presentation at the ISC 2020, um, conference um he you know learned also there that he's the co-chair of the american heart strokes and stroke associations massachusetts stroke systems of care so um i'm also proud to say that and we'll get into it in the interview um, um i'm also proud to call lester a friend and also he's you know he's he's my personal uh, neurologist. And, um, I think when you come in and you're going to get to meet him and the folks are going to get to listen in, uh, you're going to see really why he's a, he's a special breed and, uh, uh, um, you know, I, 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 have been really, you know, it's <laughs> the reason we're recording this is, as I mentioned, he's such a busy guy that, you know, when he has a young family of his own that we're doing this probably out, this is the latest we've ever recorded, but I'm so glad. Um, he gave us our, his time tonight. So, um, let's, um, let's, 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 let's get this started because I are really, um, excited to, 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 to share yeah. His, his, yeah.
2: this sh- is, this is a fun one, David, you know, for me particularly, I, I know how much of a, a role he played in your, your, you know, like post-stroke, um, and you know, there's brilliant work happening at Tufts, you know, both at the acute phase, but you know, long-term long-term care models that they're coming up with so yeah it was a really exciting discussion and like you touched on yeah I think it was the most personally personally touched um you know discussion that we've had as well so it was amazing to see that um so yeah let's jump into it um after this interview coming next will be Kate who's actually a colleague of Lester as part of the SIA program that he'll touch on so Make sure you turn into our next episode. Um, should be released uh, before I leave for Ireland for sure. So should yes. be by you know second week of, or uh, first week of December. So keep an eye out for that. And as always, please share, like, subscribe. And any questions, we I believe Lester's left his contact details in the show notes. So we'll, we'll be sure to get you in touch. Um, thank you, and you know you enjoyed this episode with Thanks. Lester Young of Tufts. Thank you.
1: Good evening, Lester. Welcome to the No stroke Podcast. Um, we're, uh, we're, we appreciate your your being with us on a late Sunday evening here, and um, we're um, very excited to dive into conversation. Before you came on, we kind of we we set the stage and we we gave our listeners a little bit about your background. Um, but I just want to kind of set the stage cause the last time you and I met in person, it goes back to, um, February, 2020 and we were having breakfast at yes. a little, little, um, famous somewhat famous breakfast shop in and outside the Staples around the corner from the Staples center, getting ready to go in and start the, the, the international stroke conference. Um, And it seems like a world, uh, you know, a lifetime ago. Uh, But first of all, um, can you remember the name of that place? It was. was, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) I'd have to look up on Google Maps what it was.
0: I usually start places that I like. So you you
1: recommended (laughs) it. You you sought it out, and it was a great breakfast and even better conversation because um, uh, we were were discussing, um, um, you actually. allowed me to uh have the time and share that breakfast with um uh kate your nurse practitioner within the strokes uh, uh group at at tufts as well as i get to meet amy Ed edmonds of young stroke and so it was fascinating conversation and that kind of sets the stage for like we're, i love all the stuff you're doing mike um has um been following your work some time as well and you know we really want this, um, you know, our listeners, to really get a sense of all the great work you're doing at Tufts. So, would you mind like telling us, like you, where you're from and your background, and and what 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 led you down the path to to where you are today?
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, thank you again for having me here on the podcast. It's always my pleasure um, to talk about all these different things. Um, I, I guess the the short story for me, so I I, um, I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana. So that's where. Um, I consider my home. And I uh, came up to Boston for um, kind of college and then went back to New Orleans post Katrina for medical school. Um, and part of that for me, having grown up in New Orleans, I really wanted to be back there for the rebuilding process. So that was um, very enlightening for me in many ways. Um, Spent a good amount of the time helping people tear down their houses and getting the mold out of there and kind of pulling out their belongings, riding with EMS as we were just going into all these neighborhoods that were devastated, um, and just trying to kind of help help people where they were. Um, and then seeing um really a, a very fractured healthcare system and all the challenges of people getting um getting even just the basics of medical care. And so I learned a lot during that time. This was um just this was pre-Obamacare, so just as a I was starting to kind of come onto the scene. Um, And in that context, I actually uh, originally thought I was going to be an internal medicine physician, either a cardiologist or a pulmonary critical care doctor. I had done some research in asthma as a a college student. Um, But I had a a really dynamic mentor uh, whose name is Cheryl martin Schild. She's a stroke neurologist um, in New Orleans, still is there now. Um, And she just kind of swept me off my feet. um, And it was just, very energetic, very engaging, um, and really showed me that uh, people with stroke really are suffering and really have a lot that they need, particularly in terms of education and kind of guiding them along the process. Um, And I'd gone in through medical school not thinking that there was a lot that could be done in terms of neurological diseases, Um, but then when I saw that in action um, as as a medical student, that really um, consolidated for me what I wanted to do in terms of realizing that this is where I want to dedicate my time and energy. <laughs> um, and so I decided to become a neurologist and then a stroke neurologist after that came up, came back up to Boston um, with my wife, who's also a physician and uh, ironically also a stroke neurologist, except for kids. Um, and uh, that, this is where I am. Interesting. Um,
1: what, you know, things certainly have changed, um, since that time we were together and were you, can you talk about what, what you were presenting? Uh, I I know you were busy at the conference and we were crossing paths a lot. Um, what is, what is some of the present work you're working on and what kind of excites you the most about, um, where you are in your career?
0: Sure. Yeah. So, um, I try to bring something new to the stroke conference each year if I can. And and part of it is that I I work at an academic medical center. So I work at Tufts Medical Center um, and I work with a lot of students and resident physicians and others. Um, My research group actually mostly consists of very motivated, very energetic medical students. And um, through them, I've been able to explore a number of different topics, including how stroke affects young adults, <clears throat> and um, also um, I've been starting to explore more about social determinants of care, especially with respect to stroke care um, in the hyperacute phase as well as in the recovery phase. And uh, that year um, in 2020, which seems like a long time ago, yeah. uh, I was uh, presenting the work of one of my medical students who um, had been looking into risk factors for stroke, specifically um, what we consider the traditional risk factors like high blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, um, all of which are lead to a process that's called atherosclerosis, the buildup of cholesterol and blood vessels. And we were trying to see among people who were, were young with stroke, did that actually have anything to do with what the um, their neurologist determined was the actual mechanism or cause of their stroke? Because there's a, a, a strong theme within the stroke research community, in terms of a line of thinking that um, in the U.S. and around the world, if you're young and you have a stroke, it's it's because of all the same reasons that older people have stroke: um, high cholesterol and diabetes and uh, tobacco use and so on. Um, but uh, we thought that that might not actually be the case, and we when we looked into um, our patient population, um, our patient population in eastern Massachusetts, we found that. Uh, even though a lot of young people have stroke risk factors that older people have, it's often not actually connected to why they had a stroke. So it's sort of true, true and unrelated. Um, It could be that they actually had a patent frame in the valley and had a clot travel through that, or maybe they had a dissection of an artery in their head or neck, um, or something else completely unrelated to blood pressure and cholesterol and blood sugar and so on. So that's what we were presenting uh, at the meeting.
2: Interesting. Interesting. So, you, when you met, when you started to talk about, you know, your, your venture back when you went to New Orleans, you mentioned the the rebuilding process, and you know that that really drew you to wanting to be, you know, in that scene where you know you were trying to help, you know, what, what was your home kind of get back to the point of where it was, um, and I could only think of how that you know relates back into the life of a stroke survivor, right, you know, it's it's that rebuilding process. Um, and you've done some excellent work, you know, you and Kate, who, you know, we're, we're going to be very fortunate to chat with in our next episode of this SIA program. But what what made you as a neurologist, you know, who obviously deal a lot with that acute phase, really start to put the emphasis on long term care for stroke survivors, and especially young stroke survivors?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's a great question. Um, for me, that really crystallized during my training when I was here in Boston, less so when I was in New Orleans, but um, although some of the seas were likely laid then, um, but when I was here in Boston and I started to, um, uh, I, I guess I should take a step back and say that a lot of the training that physicians do after medical school, when they go into Residency, which is like an apprenticeship, a lot of that's very hospital focused, um, and there's some exposure to what happens in the aftermath, but um, not as much as there can and should be. Um, but I was, as I was kind of advancing through the years of my training, I started taking care of more patients who I considered my own. I was seeing them multiple times after their hospitalizations, and I realized that they would keep coming back to me. A lot of these young adults who are in their twenties, thirties, forties, maybe early fifties, and would often just describe things that um no one ever told them about so someone might um, have had a stroke and then six months later they have a seizure and they come back and say i I didn't know this could happen like why didn't anyone tell me that i could have a seizure after my stroke and i realized that um i could see patterns in terms of how these were happening as i looked into the research in terms of what people have done a lot of these things um, what we consider late complications after stroke have been um, described, um, but just haven't really been put together. So so one of the big um, uh, kind of cornerstones of the SIA program, which is the Stroke and Young Adults Program at Tufts, is um, kind of looking at and screening actively asking questions of stroke survivors about whether or not they have symptoms of um, late medical or neurological or social complications so that we can proactively address them as they start to emerge. Some of which are things that can be treated, others of which are things that we can counsel and guide about, uh, particularly as, for example, people are trying to return to driving, return to work. Um, Maybe they want to have sex again, but they're very afraid of it because that's when the context in which they had a stroke. And um, so those
1: are all things that we try to address. And I'll, I'll just jump in there because, um, uh, you know, as you were, um, mentioning all those key points, Lester, you know, you brought me back to our original conversation when goes way back to when I was, uh, when you and I first met, um, well before the stroke conference with just your ability. Um, and I was a stroke patient stakeholder on the, the, um, the study that you were um that we first met on and, and you interviewed me as a patient and your ability to kind of ask those questions in the way you did and that you know like you, you, that's when i made that first connect you with you and said like i you weren't my neurologist at that time but i just wanted to say like that's one of the reasons why i can say that um i'm able to do this today and to continue to be an advocate because of the care and the compassion and and you know i can disclose that i'm you know i'm i'm a member of the SIA program and and i know all the great work that you do but your your um your ability to 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 really take that patient and really um and get those get to the the sort of the root and and there's not a lot of physicians that can do that that i that that i i really want to thank you for for that and your ability to um you know and i know you do that with with all your patients but um I, 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 i i i i'm i'm you know that model um how, how long were you, uh, did, did you, did, did the timing on the, um, the SIA program, were you, were you part of the, the um, how, you know, how roughly come how up? long, yeah, from, yeah, where did it come in, like, how hmm, long yeah. were you at Tufts when, when you sure. knew that there was this need you had to kind yeah. of work through?
0: Yeah, so um, basically from the first day I arrived. <laughs> so we consider its inception date July 1, which is the day that I started, <laughs> July 1, 2015, which is the day that I started at Tufts. And um, I basically came in with a um, not exactly a business plan, but a proposal for my chair that, hey, I want to build this program here. Um, and he was very supportive from, from day one. This is David Thaler, who's the, uh, the chair of neurology at Tufts. Um, he himself has a very strong interest in young adult stroke and has made a career and um, built up a lot of expertise around structurally to the patent frame in a valley um or pfo and um he was very supportive of it and uh he would just say hey take take it and run with it do do what you think is is going to be right um and so it's it started then but it's just it's been evolving over time and i, I guess maybe I'll, I'll mention a couple of things so this uh, um this kind of, dovetails or touches upon some of the conversations that I've had with Amy Edmonds of young stroke um, and many of the um, stroke survivors and ad- advocates in her group as well as other um, neurologists and um, uh, nurses and others um, who are very interested in helping young adults with stroke there, there are a number of different I think models that people have come up with in terms of trying to address the needs of people who um, who are young and have stroke and actually um, there's another uh, kind of well-known expert in our area, Anish Singhal, who's a, a stroke neurologist at Mass General Hospital, um, who has also built a career in this area. And he actually invited me to write a chapter in a book that's going to be coming out next year. And the chapter that I wrote is specifically about uh, post-acute care programs for young adult stroke survivors, or actually just young stroke survivors in general. And I actually highlight a few of them, um, including the side program at Tufts, the young stroke program at um, Uh, Young Adult Stroke Program at Mass General, um, the Young Stroke Program at Stanford, and also the um, (laughs) History of Vascular Diseases Program at Boston Children's Hospital um, for kids and adolescents. And um, in that chapter, I kind of described different ways that um, health centers, medical centers, have tried to kind of structure models to help provide medical care as well as support other needs for young stroke survivors. Um, But the plug that I'll say for the SIA program at Tufts is that Um, it's really meant to be portable so we we actually um, over the years I've been refining it and and, and actually have an acronym um, which I hope you'll love it's it's endure and it's meant to help focus the the doctor the nurse whoever it is in terms of helping the stroke survivor kind of figure out how to strategize around things Um, because it's really um, for us like we're not a a gigantic, very rich medical center. We we have to be kind of uh, young and scrappy per se, like uh, lynn manuel Miranda um, and um, so sort of use, use the resources we have. And the hope that I have is that this is something that can be replicated and can be brought to many places. So there's some other medical centers like in Michigan and some other places that are trying to replicate and do what we do. Um, but the, the acronym, the first two are very medically oriented. So the first is etiology. And then the N is next stroke. So the idea is that for me as a neurologist, I'm trying to figure out what caused your first stroke, because that's what's going to be the the leading edge in terms of your risk of having um, more problems, um, uh, especially in the short term. Uh, But the N helps me focus on competing risks. So maybe you had a stroke related to a dissection, but um, you also have high blood pressure. And so I, I do need to address your blood pressure as well to make sure that you don't have a stroke two years from now, because that that was uncontrolled or, or not um, assertively managed. Um, the, the next two letters, the, the D, uh, actually the next three letters, the D, the U and the R, uh, the D is uh, the deficits um, or in disability from the stroke, kind of understanding how did the stroke affect you and, and how is that really preventing you from doing what you wanna do? Um, the U is, is where the late complications come in, it's unexpected complications. Um, what are the things that I might be able to anticipate as a physician but, um, it's my responsibility to kind of help you keep an eye out for those things, the things that individually for you, um, I want you to look out for. And then the R is the kind of re- rehabilitation and recovery, figuring out, okay, these are, this is how stroke has knocked you down, but how can we help you get back up again? What what are the things that, will, um, that we can do in terms of removing those barriers? Because it I think ultimately a lot of recovery and rehabilitation is not going to be the same for each person and needs to be really customized. Um, but that's something that um, an individual stroke survivor may have a hard time navigating, which is where I, th- I think some of the, a lot of the work that you guys are doing is is really going to be amazing as it kind of grows further in terms of helping people find those resources. Um, and then the last one, E, is, is the education piece in terms of figuring out, okay, what types of things um, this time when I'm, you know, we're, we're seeing each other, having a conversation. What what types of things um, can I be helping you with in terms of sharing, in terms of knowledge? So a lot of people come to me with questions that are not medical questions, but but things like, hey, you know, how, how am I going to figure out how to get back to work? Or how am I going to get going to pay the bills? How am I going to um, figure out how to, um, you know, talk to my my husband about how, you know, I can't do that thing anymore and he needs to, you know, Take on more of this responsibility. So there, there are a lot of things that that I end up serving more as like a coach in terms of trying to guide people through those challenges with their with how their stroke has impacted them.
2: And you know, as as David mentioned, it, you know previously, it, it, you know you're able to get to that emotional level with a patient that you know removes those barriers and they're able to af- ask you the difficult questions. So you know that's a, That must be a very rewarding part of the job for you. Yeah.
0: It is. Um, There's a lot of tears
2: too, so I keep a yeah, the cleaning boxes in my <laughs> <in the> office. <laughs> well, I I was curious, and I wanted to kind of dive into some of your research um, that's come out recently as well around. You know, we we've been talking about you know this model, and you you kind of mentioned two interesting places that you've worked, right? Um, you know, the Northeast, Boston. As you know, where you where you are currently, and then in New Orleans, so you've you've kind of seen two different worlds in terms of right how survivors at the end of the day are impacted by stroke. Um, I came from Ireland, where I lived for about six years, and you know the differences of if you were in Dublin or in one of the big cities, and you had your stroke, the likelihood to be you know get get the TCPA and, and you get that care that you needed obviously just increase in tenfold, which, you know, impacts outcomes. So I'd love to hear more of, you know, the research that you're looking at around the impacts of social determinants of health uh, in that road to recovery.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's, uh, thanks for asking about that. Um, a lot of this is uh, is relatively new and uh, and unpublished, so 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 I'll put that caveat there. Um, we're submitting some papers and such, but um, as as I mentioned previously, like I, I work with a lot of incredibly smart, incredibly motivated medical students um, who're smarter than I am. I, I just happen to have the the tools and like the ability to kind of like guide them um, in a particular direction so that they can shine. Um, and uh, especially over the past two years, as um, the COVID pandemic has laid bare just lots of disparities in healthcare. There's um, been a new sort of opportunity to try and really put a magnifying glass to those and see, you know, what what are the things that we're doing or, or that we're not doing that's really making, um, in particular, the delivery of healthcare inequitable. And um, there there are just many different angles of looking at this. But uh, some of my students have been looking and focusing on the phase of care that's after people leave the hospital the um the post-acute care or the recovery phase and um as, as both of you know and hopefully many of your listeners know um there are many different destinations that people can go to after they leave the hospital with a stroke if they're If their symptoms are or their deficits are relatively mild, they might be able to go home and get some therapy at home, maybe go to a clinic after that. If they're more severe, then the hope is that they go to um, a good rehabilitation hospital. And by good, um, I mean that there's um, physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists that are um, very experienced with people who have stroke as opposed to orthopedic injuries and and other issues, Um, and also uh, the physicians that can help work with them too, like physiatrists and neurologists um, who can kind of anticipate problems, address them as they come up. Um, And uh, one thing that um, one of my students named Catherine was looking at is there's actually this uh, measure of um, income uh, or socioeconomic status that isn't necessarily looking at the individual, but it's actually looking at a neighborhood or a community. And so her hypothesis was, maybe we can look at the community level uh, at a zip code, let's say within different regions of Massachusetts, which actually Massachusetts has many areas that have very high income inequality as compared to other parts of the US. Um, And maybe if we kind of hone in on these, these locations, these regions, we might see that there's some difference in terms of how people do in their stroke outcomes, because we, we would like to see everyone kind of like recover pretty quickly over the first um, three months, essentially the first several uh, first few months for several weeks, um, at least in terms of getting to a reasonably functional level being able to walk being able to um, start communicating verbally again if, if those are some of their symptoms um but if, if people don't get to kind of that phase early on then then they've um then they might be at quite a disadvantage afterwards in terms of trying to get more rehabilitation services so she actually was looking at uh the kind of main outcomes measure it's very crude it's called the modified rank score um for patients when they were just leaving hospital so at, at hospital discharge and then when they came back to their first visit in the stroke clinic and what she found is that for people who lived in neighborhoods with high income inequality, which is to say um, there are some people who were very well-to-do, very rich, some people who had uh, much lower incomes in the same neighborhood, same zip code, those, um, the people who lived there had um, a blunted recovery trajectory. They were less likely to um, get to a good Level of function, <laughs> um, as compared to people who lived in neighborhoods that were kind of more equal in terms of, of income, um, and and this was different than at discharge, where there was no difference. Like when, when you enter the hospital, and then when you leave the hospital, it doesn't matter what neighborhood you come from. But when you leave um, and then come back to the clinic, something in that time period, in terms of where you go, what you do, what what you have access to, really makes a difference in terms of. How, how well you do and our, our our interpretation of that is that um at a community level there are just some communities that don't invest in resources for people uh with stroke with for stroke survivors in terms of um uh you know rehab clinics and and um com- uh, kind of community resources for uh transportation to get people um to where they need to go or supports for uh caregivers who otherwise are being pulled from work in order to to bring their their parents, their um their spouses, their children to a, a rehab clinic. So so we think that that at least kind of highlights that there there's there's some problems there in terms of um, how we're distributing resources. I, I my follow-up
1: question to that Lester is, is um when you were when you were looking at the state and and following and the disparities, the, the differences, um were you following this pre pre-COVID and then what maybe the other part to that question is did covid magnify a lot of that and where what what were some of those barriers and did they get bigger during yeah. this recent um this you know what we're experiencing to a degree still now
0: yeah that that's that's a great question um this particular um study and the student was working with data that was pre covid pre-covid um, 2018 2019 um but we're currently co- collecting data for 2020 and 2021 including some of the same um same measures and such so so we might be able to to answer that question and see if things have gotten even worse sure, sure. Um, as a result of the covid pandemic that's a great, you you I'll, continued cuz
1: you know i was part of and still a part of the your your SCIA group so you've continued to you know you pivoted you you were able to you know our our group meetings and i seem to I was thinking back of the events that I attended and I seem to gravitate to the, uh, the, the golf outings. Cause I, I've attended a couple yeah. indoor outdoor, but during the pandemic, we moved to zoom. Um, and you continue to keep the group connected You yourself and Kate. Um, you also had to change the way, like, I know you spearheaded a, um, because uh, I, I saw some of the 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 PSAs and the things you did with with Tufts, can you talk about that and 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 what what um, what what caused you? Were, were you seeing just a, a, a real a drop off in people and the fear that came with you know wanting to go into the hospital during the height of all this?
0: Yeah, no. Uh, thanks for asking about that. Um, so you're you're talking about the period of time around February, March, yeah, April for sure of 2020 and um, at that point in time the the directive that was coming out from uh from the governor from the states really across the country was um empty your hospitals because this is going to get really bad um so send everyone home and um, if, if you're not sick don't go to the hospital um but some of some of us myself included um, who, I guess, unfortunately have the ability to anticipate problems, uh, realize that if we're telling people to not go to the hospital, they're not going to go to the hospital when they really need to, like when they're having a stroke, or a heart attack, or, or maybe some other type of injury, like, you know, they, they fell down the stairs and, and and really actually broke their hip and it's hurting, but they maybe don't, don't realize how serious that is. Um, so uh, it actually started out for me, um, just recording a video <laughs> on my computer and posting it to Twitter. And then um, our uh, head of marketing was like, we really should send this out. They <laughs> like kind of sp- spread it out more widely. So then I filmed something for, um, for Tufts, for the marketing department, and we kind of sent it out across our network. And then um, very shortly after that, like a week later, Governor Baker um, was meeting with the heads of all the m- major hospitals and just turned to them and said, uh, you know, this is this is a problem like over the past two three weeks people with stroke and heart attacks have been going to the hospital you guys need to do something about this um and very quickly um the tufts uh ceo at that time and the marketing director was like okay well we already have a script we already have a message that we want to send out let's just pull together the other hospitals and make this a joint effort um, so that's how that came about it was a a kind of um, multi-center um, state sponsored, uh, public service announcement just to tell people, you know what, we're, we're doing everything we can to keep people safe. The r- rates of transmission of COVID within the hospital are, are minimal or, or nothing. Um, so if you're really you know, having something like a stroke or a heart attack, you really need to come to the hospital and, and really need to do that, and uh, get care for that, because that's going to be much worse than, um, than anything else. Well,
1: congrats on that and getting the ball rolling because it was really well done in its final form. It it that, I um um it really made an impact. Thanks.
0: And I guess I'll I'll just say as a yeah, follow-up this is the
1: this is the
2: second. Oh, sorry, I was let me just no, I need to intrude and say you you're actually our second Boston celebrity that we've had on. I I I really thought you'd be our first, but Caroline Goggin joined us for our second episode, okay. Um, who's a news reporter up in Boston so you know, you both got great FaceTime in the Boston media outlets. I, yeah. I mean, you did. I, I remember that video even floating over to Europe. I, I saw that your face on it on the ad. And it was part of a World Stroke Organization discussion. It was a workshop around the same thing. It's like, how do we get the word out there? Uh, yeah. And I, I saw your video and, and the guys were like, look, we need to replicate this. So, yeah, amazing great. work. It's great, it, to it, ha- no. great to have another celebrity. <laughs>
0: I didn't realize that I'd gone over the Atlantic. Like I'd had some of yeah, my, my students like going back to, home to like Pennsylvania or something and say like, hey, I saw you on TV. I was like, in Pennsylvania? Really? <laughs> so um, I, was, I was just going to mention just as, as a follow-up to that, uh, something so fortunately for us, at least for a lot of our hospitals in Boston, like the message really got out and um, we didn't see very many drops in terms of people um, seeking care for stroke. Um, which is very different than the rest of the country and the rest of the world, where there were dramatic reductions in terms of people seeking care, um, which you could just imagine how many people are out there with strokes that they didn't get treated for. Um, but what we did see is that people were coming late to the hospital. Um, so they weren't often coming in within the time frames in which we normally implement some of the time-sensitive treatments for stroke. Um, which in most places for the medical treatment for ischemic stroke, it's within the first four and a half hours. Um, and then the surgical treatment is, is uh, now fortunately extended out to about 24 hours. Um, but another thing that we did to pivot at Tufts Medical Center, and we're still actually the only, um, uh, we're the only uh, comprehensive stroke center in, in, um, in Massachusetts to do this, is that we've actually extended out our tissue plasminogen activator treatment window, the medical treatment window, the clock busting shot out to 24 hours um, because there's been a lot of data and some new guidelines that suggest that we can do this safely using some advanced imaging studies Um, with the idea being that uh, between you and me one of us may be healthier and it could be like for you like your brain might be holding on better um, especially you David since you run and you're, <laughs> you're very fit and, and healthy and active um, versus uh, somebody else who's, whose brains may just transition from injury to, to dead brain faster um, and so we have imaging studies that can actually help us figure out who's actually holding on longer and may have brain that we can save um, even if they're coming to the hospital at twelve hours or sixteen hours, and so we actually um, did not have a drop in the number of people that we could treat last year because we implemented a protocol to actually extend out our treatment window. So people were coming later, and we were able to treat them. Um,
1: Sounds fascinating. Oh, I didn't.
2: Yeah, it's it, uh, the area that you know, it, you know, the that acute phase within stroke, and it's fascinating to now see you know that time change, right? And and as you see, you know, there's ambulances in Australia now that have like these mobile CT scans on, you know, so you're getting, you know, it's getting to the hospital as quick as you can, right? Um, And it's brilliant that, you know, there's so much attention put into that first phase, all right, of detecting, getting to the hospital, getting the proper treatment. Um, And it's interesting, you know, you said this earlier in the discussion, You know, it doesn't matter where you're coming from when you walk in the hospital doors and when you're getting ready to leave, it's, you know, you're the same person. It's when you leave is going to make that difference. And I guess my question to you is, you know, all this work that you're doing in this post acute phase of, you know, trying to really bring that person back to the best life that they could live, you know, after, after their stroke, does that matter? if we don't have the reimbursement models that cover that?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, that, that is such a fantastic question. And I think you're you're really digging into the heart of one of the biggest problems, which is um, in, uh, at least in the United States, but I think it's this way around the world um, in kind of well-developed countries that are really driving a lot of medical research. Uh, money is, is often, um, the, the research dollars and the kind of investments are often towards the, uh, the questions, the, the products, the um the technology that's that's very sexy um, and that seems very miraculous, but not may not actually be the things that are most helpful for people or the most accessible. Um and so I, I think this is one of the um, problems that we have in the stroke rehabilitation and recovery world that um, for stroke as a disease, it's, it's very myriad in terms of how it affects people. And so if, if you're trying, if you're trying to create a technology, um, or a type of therapy that is going to be for every patient with stroke, it's, it's just not going to work and reimbursement and insurance, they, they're very focused on, on just like, okay, what's going to work for, for all patients or, or the vast majority of them. And so I think, um, from my perspective, we have already amazing technologies that exists that are just incredible. So for for example, for people who have strokes where they're locked in, like in the book, uh, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, Mm -hmm. um, we we have these brain computer interfaces where people can be controlling like a mouse on a screen and like finding ways to type and communicate. Um, Or uh, for example, like a number of my patients, I, I try to, if they have a paralyzed arm. I try to get them access to, essentially, it's a robotic prosthesis um, called myomore or myopro, which allows them Mm -hmm. to kind of um, extend and flex their elbow and at least have a pincer grasp of their hand, which um, uh, can, you know, offer them a little bit more bimanual um, function. Um, And then we have uh, now, I think one thing that many of my patients will ask me about are stem cells, um, which it's finally in the research world starting to get to the point where they're probably safe. It looks like we're starting to convince ourselves that maybe they're safe and the technology is improving. Um, But at the end of the day, who's gonna be able to get these treatments and who are actually gonna benefit from them? And I think the the problem is that for all of these things, it's only a small fraction of patients um, who actually may benefit from them. um, And then a small fraction of people who actually may actually have access to them. Because many of these things, um, if you don't have the insurance coverage, they're going to be tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, which is far more than than the vast majority of us can ever imagine being able to access. So I, I guess for me, my philosophy is that um, as, as a neurologist is that each individual is different. And um, what I think people need along the way is, is a trainer or a coach, um, preferably like you know, whether it's it's a physical therapist like David or whether it's someone like myself or a nurse practitioner like Kate, um, working with enough medical knowledge um, and probably like a team of people who can um, be able to figure out what you need to be doing next to unlock your next level of potential in what you need to do. So oftentimes what I'm doing with people, so I think one of the the principles that, that I didn't really fully mention in terms of our program, uh, the PSY program is that, um, on day one, when I see somebody, I tell them, you know, no matter what, even if you move across the world, I'll always be a resource for you. So this, I consider this to be a lifelong um, commitment and, and uh, relationship. Um, even if, you know, you end up having another neurologist as your primary neurologist, you can always reach out to me. I know your story. I'm happy to help you along the way or help help your current team along the way. Um, and part of that is because At each stage, every time I meet with someone or have a communication with someone, there's always something new that comes up and there's always some new hurdle. Like maybe they're they're better off than they were before, but there's still something that they can't do and we need to rethink what is it that's preventing them. So early on, for example, and, and this happens so often, but for so many people who have weakness on one side as a result of stroke, so many of them develop spasticity, which is where the tone in their muscles are too tight in one group. So for example, in the arms, it's the muscles that kind of pull in and flex, those will be too tight. And so many people never have that identified or treated. Um, Or if they are treated, they're given a a pill medication for that, which makes them too sleepy um, and sedated. So then they hate it and then they don't take it anymore. Um, But the, the right treatment for that it's an expensive treatment, but one that's covered by insurance, which is botulinum toxin injections. And that can be just like a very targeted injection done by a physical medicine, rehab doctor, or sometimes a neurologist. And that, in my mind, for, for the person who has a paralyzed arm or paralyzed leg or both, that's really needed to unlock the potential for someone to actually start regaining strength. So the, the work that a physical therapist or an occupational therapist would be doing, they might just be running into a wall, like they might be running into that, that ceiling effect or that um, plateau per se, but it may not be the true plateau for that patient because of um, spasticity or something else. Um, a lot of my other patients have pain, severe neuropathic pain that's preventing them from working with their therapists, because each time the therapist touches their arm, it hurts. And it hurts in a way that it's very difficult to describe and, and very difficult to, to address. And so without that being identified, then, then what's the point of having a robotic arm stuck <laughs> stuck on uh, if, if you're not able to really benefit from it? So, so I think that um, the hard work that needs to be done for most people is very people-based and very individualized. Um, so that's why I, I hope that um, having more knowledge, having more structure around how to strategize at each time point is is what's actually probably going to help the most people. Um, And that's relatively cheap as compared to all the technologies that are being developed.
1: Yeah. So Uh, so really great points in in two words uh, that I know one Mike was smiling at on the coaching theme. I'll come to that. But you you said a word we don't like to use is plateau. Yeah. Because we we hear that um, we we you know, I, I and, and yeah. as you were talking about the solutions and things, and you bring up OMO and the technology side, like I struggle that with a, as a, as a physical therapist, where I finally it took me a while to get over that. I had to say, I'm not doing my best job unless I present these. And even though the re because this conversation started about the reimbursement and following mm-hmm. the money. And then some of those, tools are figuring out how those pieces into connect at that stage. And at that right time can help get over that dreaded plateau word in many cases, or, and, and, and you mentioned, and I, this is where, I hope your model gets replicated throughout the country because it's very much similar to what Mike and I would like that we use coaches and we use them in for other conditions. And we, you know, I, we, you know, you know, Diabetes comes to mind for one, but other, I think we really, um, we really need to refine that and all work together on and really building that part out because maybe just seeing and hearing from a group and that's the power of community. And I think what you do really well, but, you know, the fact that you, you, you said that, you know, use me as a coach, even if you move on and you become like, that's what makes your work so special, and that's like that's a gift. First of all, not everyone has a a, a, a provider that becomes a friend and, a, and, a, and and can really help you get over what maybe in other conditions a plateau that someone just says, "I just have to live with this," and whatever, whether it be a physical or um, a, a, a behavioral thing that they're struggling with like you go that extra step. So the support and the connection with the programming um, that we don't always, you know, we don't always treat stroke as like a chronic condition, but I think we need to, you know, especially in our younger survivors that are living with this for the majority of their lifetime now, um, we we have to do a better sup- job supporting um, this for a lifetime, and not just when the episode of care ends. You you know the the
0: door closes. So, yeah. Um, yeah. If I may, if my inter- if I may interject, um, I have a similar problem with the word plateau, even though I kind of threw it in there like a little grenade. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, because it's it's. Um, I mean, on the on the one hand, you can just describe what you observe, and so like part of the reason why many people come to see me, you know, month after month, year after year, is is they just want to, they want my objective eyes to see how are they doing now as compared to last time. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes I have to tell people like, you're pretty much where you were last time, or maybe you're a little bit worse off and we need to get you back to physical therapy and occupational therapy to kind of keep moving, you know, get you kind of back on track and moving things forwards again. Um, uh, But oftentimes, more often than not, I actually see small improvements or incremental improvements, which, um, may seem small to many physicians and nurses, but to the survivor, they c- that can mean everything in the world. In terms of um, being able to, you know, now now be able to have enough control in their hands so that they can button their shirt, for example. Um, and uh, so, so I, I think that it's you know, plateau isn't really meant to be a dirty word per se. If it's it's really just kind of like meant to be an objective <coughs> um, description of okay, where are you on this kind of chart or this trajectory? Um, the problem is that with any sort of, uh, what's called outcomes research um, in in medical research, um, the y-axis, sorry, the x-axis, which is time, uh, really matters in terms of how far are those researchers actually following somebody out? How far is that physical therapist or that occupational therapist going to be working with this particular person such that they may actually see how they continue to change <clears throat> i see them continue to change because i'm still seeing people seven eight ten years after their stroke but um, a lot of those initial physicians nurses um, therapists won't ever see them again so they just have it in this mind like oh okay they're out a plateau um, as if it's an inevitability or if it's as, as if it's like a a hard truth a hard rock that can't be moved um, but i think an important message for people is that that it can be, um, in many cases, it's just a matter of um, figuring out all the pieces that have to come together to actually make that happen. So.
2: Uh, Lester we, we normally end with the question around if you were if we were to give you a magic wand, you know how would you redesign the stroke rehab experience and you know I think. There's so many tidbits that you've just covered over the last, you know, 45 minutes with us that really encompasses, yeah, you know, how you feel and and what you've already done to make this ma- this experience truly some of the best in the, of what I've seen in the world for a stroke survivor, you know, in in, in your program. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're already doing amazing work, but let's let's dive a little deeper and, and we're gonna hand over the magic wand and you know, in a few sentences, you know, how how would this rehab experience look for you and
0: yeah um i mean i i think a key part of it is is the um the one-on-one kind of direction like i, I think everyone um deserves to have a person who's helping them to guide them along the way um and i'll, I'll just kind of say as uh, I'll, I'll get maybe maybe i'll, I'll um provide just a brief anecdote as kind of an aside, just kind of which I think is a beautiful illustration of this, which was um even before uh or before I knew that stroke was what I wanted to do, I, I had a friend that I met um who's uh actually a pre-law student um, from Switzerland. Um and then she had this very crystal clear idea of what she wanted to do, which was I want to be a lawyer, a, a defense lawyer for people on death row. And as I Wow, that's that's very specific. And I, and then I just asked her, so so why is that? And the way she told it to me is that these are people who are on the precipice of existence. Um, you know, they're coming to the end of their lives, and there's no one else there for them. So I I feel like I need to be there for them to help them. And so for me, that that I think kind of was a, a beautiful illustration of what. I think there are many people who feel this, like the, the need to want to help others um, and to kind of help help in different ways to guide them through a, a troubling time. And so I think that um, in a perfect world in terms of a stroke we have experienced, there would be for each person, for each survivor, at least one person who's helping them along the entire way. Um, and is a consistent resource, and can help pull together pieces. Okay, okay, you need to see the neurologist, or okay, you need to pull in the physiatrist, the physical therapist, the speech therapist, the occupational therapist. Oh, okay, you know what? Um, I hear what they're saying here. I think maybe, why don't we try and see if we can get you access to this technology that, that might help with this particular thing during this particular time. Um, because all of these are just puzzle pieces that some people may need and some others don't, um, but right now everyone's just struggling to figure out Oh, you know, I heard about this thing. Is it will it be beneficial for me? Um, but it's, uh, I think, navigating all of that is is probably what's most difficult for people. So that that navigator, that guide, that coach is, I think, the most important part. So if, if that piece is in place, um, the icing on the cake would be ha- having reimbursement for everything <laughs> and access to all technologies. Um, that that would be the other piece.
2: Absolutely. And it, you know, yeah, as David said before, I, my my eyes lit up when you said that one to one support because you know I yeah. I've been involved in the the health coaching community for a while and I see you know really what the power of that one to one support does, um, and you know to be able to bring that into a chronic stroke population is even more important because of how com- complex that journey could be and how individual that journey individualized you know that journey is for each stroke survivor so. Um, we're actually, it was a nice tea up uh, here, Lester, and you didn't even know what you were doing, but, um, uh, <laughs> o- over the next few weeks, um, we're going to be bringing in a friend of mine, Martina uh, Barhovich, who she started a company after her cancer um, journey and I saw the impact of what health coaching did for her and wanted to bring that to the, a wider uh, population. So she's going to be speaking about some of her work. Um, so Yeah. For, Well done there, you know, for, I think for us to, you know, hear that it's, it's the power of community, it's that power of support. And, you know, I think for David and I, I could speak for us both. Like it gives us fuel to the fire to continue what we're trying to do with, with enable us and really bring that community spirit together and, you know, have folks who, you know, might be at that point where they've heard that word plateau, come in Mm -hmm. listen to you know you speak here this evening and and kind of give that next push to them so um really do appreciate your time lester
1: yeah and between endure by the way we're going to put that in the show notes i wrote down Mm -hmm. that acronym uh, and enable us um is there is there anything in closing that we may have missed lester that you might want to um add here
0: yeah, I, I think as as you're kind of describing that Michael, one thing that I was thinking a little bit about is um, another challenge, which I think also kind of fits into this like perfect world vision is, is how to bridge the gap between the medical community, like healthcare professionals and the community of survivors. Um, uh, like I, I guess for my myself, and maybe I'm hearing this in David's words, like I, I think I'm a, a little bit unusual in terms of my focus and, and my interest as a physician. Um, and I uh, kind of expressed previously, and, and this will probably come into your next interview with Kate, um, that I think that um, advanced practice providers, especially kind of very well-trained nurse practitioners um, like Kate, really are the future of, of um, on the medical side of post-acute care um, for stroke because um, in... In the care of people with stroke on the medical side, there are relatively few of us in terms of physicians who can provide that care. And so relatively few will actually have the bandwidth to follow people in the long term. Um, whereas nurse practitioners are really a kind of a growing field um, of professionals who just come from a different focus. Like they're very holistic in terms of their care. Like they they want to build relationships with people and have that be there for the long term. So I think that's a much natural fit on the um, healthcare provider side in terms of being able to address the needs of, of stroke survivors, especially kind of in this Endure model that I was describing. Um, but I was also just thinking like as you're describing health coaches, um, many of whom would be non-healthcare professionals, um, I wonder if, if there will be the opportunity for like this very kind of close partnership, um, especially between nurse practitioners and health healthcare coaches um, in terms of uh, moving things forwards for stroke survivors.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, and I really feel that it's going to take groups like yourself. Cause you, you I think you've shown, and if, if anyone that I've talked to in the, in the SIA group over the years, that's the message that comes around how, the difference that you and your team have made and letting them know at that time, it's okay to not be okay. And, and but it's when like the, I, I, I know I'm not bringing this, this out the right way in closing, but like, like I said at the beginning, like you're the reason, you know, in part that I'm able to now give back because you helped me through sometimes where I thought I had hit a roadblock. And so, you know, um, you know, I think it's fitting in closing out our season two season of giving that there's no one more giving than you. And then our also, um, Kate, who will follow in our last episode to close out season eight. So, um, I think that we've kept you long enough this evening, but anything that you, um, would like to add in the show notes, or maybe, um, um, we can, um, you know, uh, as, as your mission moves forward and our mission moves far, maybe in the seasons to come, we'd love to have you back on as well. So, um, for, for now, Mike, I know this is where Mike you know, I have a hard time wrapping things up because I could talk to you all night. And I know it's already way after hours. So yeah. I think with well, that said, I'll, yeah. I'll 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 wrap it here.
0: Well, thank, thank you, David. I, I really appreciate all those all those words that you've said. I'm glad that I was able to From help. The heart. My pleasure. Thank you.
2: Yeah. Well, I couldn't think of a, a nicer way to end. So I do appreciate it. And you know, Lester, thanks for getting this guy to where he is today, because him and I are we're, we're having fun with this and are. you know it, it's something that you know is close to the both of our hearts so it's, it's amazing to have this conversation um and we do look forward to speaking with Kate in our next next discussion so thank you very much Great. for your time I I think I have some uh Christmas trees to put up in my house those of you who, are, who have been watching Lester and David pushed forward this weekend. Um, got their Christmas trees up, and I've been slacking. So maybe, Un- maybe unplanned that's... at that too. So
1: <laughs> we'll make sure we get that covered on the next uh, the next episode with Kate, Mike. All right, we are the season. <laughs> Thanks again, Lester. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye, Lester. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the No Stroke Podcast. Be sure to tune in each week for more knowledge on stroke recovery in the brain with tips, technology, and interesting stroke thriver interviews where they share their success to enable you on your own healing journey. Make sure to hit the follow button on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our show. Mike and I will love to ask you to rate and review our show to enable us to grow our audience. Please check the show notes to follow us on social so you can connect and reach out to find more about advertising with us or becoming a guest on our show. Until next time, stay well, keep the faith, and keep moving forward.